Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. We all know that working hard is important, and I suspect you also know that it's often not enough to get the opportunities that you'd like to obtain. Now, sometimes we say that's because other people have more of an edge or an advantage that your hard work alone is just not going to overcome. So what we're going to talk about today is how do you create that edge for yourself, particularly when you feel you are at a disadvantage. And I want to say at the outset, disadvantage perceptions, my feelings of disadvantage, can come from a whole host of places. It may be related to my background, to my training, to my culture of heritage, to my gender, to my way of thinking. There may be any of those. How do we take that feeling of disadvantage and turn it on its head, I should say? My guest today is Laura Wang. Laura is an associate professor of business at the Harvard Business School, and I should say not just any associate professor. She's the MBA class of 1954 named associate professor at Harvard Business School. Her research looks at relationships and biases in the workplace, and she's the creator of Hashtag Find Your Edge, which is an initiative addressed uh, to um dedicated to in balance. I can't talk today, which is an initiative dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. And you can sign up for this if you're interested at HTPS colon slash slash edgeremarkable.com. More importantly for us today, her book is entitled Edge turning adversity into an advantage. Now, her research has been featured in Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and Nature. She's been named one of the 40 best business school professors under 40. And if that's not enough, she's held a bunch of other positions in investment banking, consulting, management for Standard Chartered Bank, IBM, Johnson & Johnson. More Near and dear to my heart, she also holds an MS and a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Duke University, as well as an MBA from MCAD and a PhD from University of California, Irvine. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have a fellow Dukey on, always. But I don't know how under 40 you've managed to fit all of that in. So, you know, kudos to you. There's something going on there that's really, really important. I want to talk about this thing about edge. So what got you thinking about this? You know, I think I have been doing research for a really long time on disadvantage and disparities and inequality and people who feel like they're constantly being underestimated. And it all was sort of very depressing to the extent where people would come up to me after I was giving a talk, for example, and say, you know, all these sort of negative effects that you're showing and these disparities that you're showing, is there a way for us to level the playing field? Is there a way, are there are there strategies and tactics, are there ways that we can actually prevent against these sort of things? And so 
much of what I was finding was lots of structural things, like things like that, that, that as an individual, we weren't able to control. Things like, you know, we need to have more, we need to have more diverse and inclusive top management teams. We need to have more diverse and inclusive mentors. We need to be thinking about the ways that we do hiring better. But there weren't a lot of ways that individuals could sort of tackle this themselves. And so the last couple of years, my research has all been around that, ways that individuals could really attack this head on and think about how even though some people naturally have an advantage and others don't, that those who don't can still create one for themselves, that when they recognize about the signals and perceptions and stereotypes of others, that they can flip those things in their favor so that people can find and create their own edge. And that's really this idea of creating an edge. Um, That's where that kind of came from. I love that one because my belief all along has been that if I put the tools in individuals' hands about how to take back control of their careers, then they're in a much better position than if we keep waiting for something around the organization or the structure or the management practices to change. I I worry we'll be waiting for another 100 years. So I'd like this idea. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is that, like, we've been talking about this for a really long time. I mean, decades. We've been talking about how the structures are imperfect, how it's not truly a meritocracy, that there's sort of this myth of meritocracy. And the thing is that, you know, we have to, to some extent, assume that the system is not going to change or that if it changes, it may not change as quickly as we intend it to or that it may change but not in the ways that we expected it to. But even if it does, we can't just wait around for it. We have to kind of confront it as it is. So this is very much about how do we, how do we empower ourselves to, to operate within an imperfect system. Um, and, and so that was really why I wanted to, to sort of write this book so that it was this perspective that we all, no matter what sort of disadvantages or adversity or how we're underestimated, that we have the, the, the power to really flip things in our own favor. Okay, so you said what got you started thinking about this was you were giving talks about all the ways in which things were not working as a level playing field is the way they should. And it was your audience that was asking you, is there anything I can do? Have you ever had the personal experience of feeling that you needed to flip things on their edge and turn a disadvantage into an advantage? Has that been a personal journey for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a number of times more than I more than I care to like that. I even wish to be able to to have experienced. I mean, I think we all have these we all have these experiences. A lot of times with my students, I will ask them, you know, to to think about a situ think about a situation where you felt like you were at in a disadvantage, or think about some at some point at which someone wronged you, where you still when you think back to that that experience, it still leaves you kind of feeling bitter to some extent or jaded or, you know, and the amazing thing is that within 15 seconds, we all can think of this instance where we feel like we've been wrong. And it still like makes us either frustrated or angry or bitter or something that we still kind of hold that as, um, as something that we remember sometimes decades later. And, you know, I talk a lot about how that bitterness sometimes stays with us. But what we need to be doing is, is asking ourselves, 
is this making me bitter or is this making me better? And how can this bitterness make me better? And it's not to say that it's not going to still be painful, that there's still not going to be scar tissue there, but that scar tissue has to be sort of protective to allow us to then be able to flip things in our favor. Because what happens is that the the core of this, the core behind um but behind a lot of this perspective and the core behind a lot of the research that I've done is this aspect of what hard work actually means. I mean, these days we sort of have this love affair with like grit and hard work. We talk so much about just like keep persevering, just put in the, put in the hard work. But the problem is that with grit, Sometimes it feels like we're hitting the same wall over and over and over again. Like we're doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it leaves us really frustrated. Because the thing about grit and hard work is that we've, we've been taught from this really young age that success and positive outcomes are about hard work and grit. And I would never say that they're not critical, that, that grit and hard work are not critical. But hard work alone is often not enough. We... You know, we put in that hard work, and it doesn't always speak for itself. And again, that's because so much of it is dominated by signals and perception, the perceptions of others and the stereotypes of others. That's what's really dictating a lot of success and outcome. And so when we can find a way to really hone in on what those perceptions that others have about us are, and then know how to sort of turn those in our favor so that they're no longer negative, that's when we really can create our own edge. Okay. Well, there was a lot that you said in there that I think is really, really powerful. I want to come back to one in the very, very beginning and then a second one follow on. That Mm -hmm. sense of feeling jaded and bitter and angry, and you did that in a beautiful way because I think all of us can recognize a time when we feel like somebody wronged us, unfairly wronged us, unfairly recognized, unfairly acknowledged, unfairly credited, unfairly listened. I mean, a whole bunch of we feel wronged. I see way too many people who carry that with them, as you said, for decades, and they turn that into an anger and a retaliation as Mm -hmm. opposed Uh to turn it into something that says, right, I'm going to be better or I'm going to show you or I'm going to find another way. So I think mm-hmm. that's, I just yeah. see that so many times, how much damage that does to people's ultimate leadership effectiveness because of that anger that they carry around with them. I think there's this other thing. I mean, I love the mer- love the idea of meritocracy. Who doesn't? You know, what organization wants to say, hey, we're not a meritocracy? Um, you, you know, no one. We all do. We all, But the truth is not all opportunities are created equal and not all production gets recognized as equally as other productions. So this notion of perception, who I trust, where I go, who I see as the count on is not always as linear based on who's produced what. So I think that notion that, yes, grit is important, but just sitting there doing the same thing you've done for the last 15 years may not get you where you want to be in the future. I think that's a really, really important concept. Okay, so Laura, I'll take the bait. Perception, <laughs> relationships, I'll even argue, um, kind of dictate a bit of how people see what I've done and whether it's to my credit or to somebody else's credit or whether it's even important. So how do I take that perception and turn it on its head? 
Yeah, so one of the core principles behind um, edge, so edge is really this, this, it's really about how do you gain and create an edge, but it also stands for the framework that I've developed in my research where the E-D-G-E actually stands for um, the components of this framework. So the E stands for enrich, the D stands for delight, the G stands for guide, and the last E stands for effort. And so the the first E is about enrich, which is really about knowing how you enrich and provide value in any sort of context. The problem is that we don't always have the opportunity to show how we provide value. And so that's why the D is for delight. It's so important to also know how others see us and in what ways we sort of are delightful and what ways that we sort of are counterintuitive and surprising because that's the equivalent of cracking the door open so we have the opportunity to show how we provide value. The G is for guide, which is how we sort of redirect perceptions all through this, even as we're sort of trying to show how we enrich and provide value and how we delight. The G is for guide and continuously trying to guide those perceptions. And the final E is for effort and hard work. And as we sort of already talked about, I, I, I talk a lot about how that effort and hard work comes last. We often assume that that hard work should come first, that if we put in that hard work, it'll speak for itself. But in fact, it comes last because if you know how you enrich, delight, and guide, that's when your effort and hard work actually work harder for you. And so those are sort of the components behind it. And so the first step is sort of having this perspective and understanding how do you provide value? What are those basic things? What are those core goods that you have? How are you able to sort of delight others? And what you're specifically talking about is that G piece. And once we know those sort of things, how do we guide and flip, flip and redirect? those perceptions. So I'll give you just one quick example because, um, you know, this certainly applies to all of the sort of cast of characters that we think about. Stereotypes around gender and race and ethnicity and religion and class and all of those, um, all of those sort of things that we typically think about. Um, but it's, it's more than just that. It's also about just the fact that we are making perceptions about people all the time, that we have first impressions of people, but even people we've known for 5, 10, 20 years, we also have perceptions of those people. And so it's about not passively letting others write your narrative. It's about writing your own narrative and guiding others' views of you. So one example of this that I'll take outside of all of those, those sort of examples, like let's take ageism, for example. I've done some research that's shown that, for example, our lay assumptions of people who are older employees or people who are older candidates for jobs is things like they're not as technologically proficient, they're not as good with technology and learning new things and all of those sort of things that we have these stereotypes about. But underlying those perceptions is always one or two or three sort of main underlying perceptions. In this case, it's about curiosity. People assume that those who are older are not as curious. So when I tell these older employees or older individuals who are perhaps in interviewing for a new job, I go to them and I say, before they, right before they're going to interview, I say, the perception they have about you is that you're not as curious. 
And what happens is they go into these interviews and they start talking about things like, they're like, you know, I'm really curious about the vision for this company. And I'm really curious about your strategy and how it's evolved over time. And they keep talking about these sort of things. And by the end of it, the, the interviewer not only rates them much higher on curiosity, but amazingly also rates them much higher on things like technological proficiency and how good they are with technology and computers and willingness to learn. And they're much more likely to get that job. So wow. taking those, you're taking those inherent perceptions that they have about you, and you're flipping those, and you're addressing those in a really benign way so that it flips their perceptions of you as well. You're not going in there and saying, I know it's because I'm older that you think X, Y, and Z, or I know it's because I'm a woman that you think X, Y, and Z. But you're, you're really honing in on what those underlying perceptions are and then redirecting those perceptions. All right. I love this one. I think this is just such a core part of this one. So first comment is often when I do 360 feedback with people, they get the feedback that they are not strategic enough or bold enough or taking enough risks or pushing enough change. One of the core attributes we often see, I often see in my clients, particularly in the middle and upper middle ranks that need to show strategic. And everybody is like, I don't know how to to do this. And I often say to people, start dropping the word strategic into all of your conversations. So from a strategic point of view, I think X, Y, and Z. What are the strategic Mm -hmm. implications of this that we're thinking about? You know, if we think about this strategically, partly it forces you to frame things for yourself in a slightly different way. And two, it just calls out that sense of, wait a minute, here is an example of me being strategic without having to actually say that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really key piece of it. I think doing that is important, but it's also important to do that in the context of in a way that you feel comfortable with, that Mm -hmm. you feel like you can back up. And that's why the, the E part of this framework is so important. Like, how do you enrich and provide value? Because what happens is a lot of times we, you know, there's, there's really two key components to this, which is like, we need to know, we know that we enrich and provide value. And the second piece of it is that other people believe it too, right? So that we provide value and then others see it. The problem is that there's not always, you know, we need to decide sometimes whether there's an and in between those two statements that we provide value and other people see it too, or if there's an or between theirs, because we know lots of people who only have that second piece. They're really good at managing impressions and convincing other people that they provide value, but they don't, in fact, themselves provide value. And we sort of, you know, going back to sort of that bitterness piece of it, like we, 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 we've all experienced this, like someone who kisses up to the boss or someone who's like all fluff and no substance. And that makes us frustrated because we're like, oh, look at all of those things that that person achieved. And we feel like it's not fair, that there's some sort of inequality behind it because, you know, that it wasn't authentic. And, and then we sort of say to ourselves, oh, like, we don't want to be like that. Like, we don't want right. to do that. And so I often sometimes also get the question, like, how do, you know, this sometimes makes, is this something that's like almost like overly strategic or manipulative? to to be sort of guiding and redirecting people in this way. And what I say, what I tell them is that this is actually the opposite of being manipulative or or like managing impressions. 
This is the fact that you know how you enrich and provide value. And because you know that, you are making sure that other people know authentically who you are and the values that you provide as well. That, you know, that, that it's, it's this, this aspect of not trying to point them to who you're not. And, but it's really that they're going to be making impressions of you sometimes that are very, very wrong. And so why should you sort of allow them to do so? You actually have a deeper, richer connection with them if from the very beginning you're sort of helping them know how they should see you in a more accurate and authentic way. And so that's the piece they think is really critical. And so when you do recognize, as you sort of are saying, like that, that people go into it saying like, okay, we need to be able to like be someone who's more of a strategic thinker and think outside the box and all of the things that people are looking for. When you're able to connect that to who you are and examples of when you've really done that, that's when this actually goes a lot farther for you. And when that hard work works harder for you as well. That's where you get those sort of tailwinds. Right. And I certainly would agree with you that if you're pretending that you have the goods and you don't, that may carry you for a while, but I don't, I personally don't believe it carries you for terribly long. And a while may just be longer than the rest of us are happy to watch, but I don't think it takes to last for forever. <laughs> Not today, at least. Okay, um, I need to get an example of this one, but I have like three follow-up questions here that I think are really, really important. I want us go back to this notion of enrich for a moment, because this is also near and dear to my heart. This notion that you know you provide value. Now we want to make sure and others see it, and it's not one side of that equation or the other. But one of the challenges, the way that I'm providing value may not be the value that other people are hoping for from me. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice on how to tackle that issue? Yeah. I mean, the issue really is that we're really, we are very much socially interconnected creatures, right? And so whenever there's sort of some sort of uncertainty, um, we, we sort of look at what other people are doing. We're like, okay, what are other people doing? And that gives us a sense of, of control. And so with really understanding how you enrich and provide value, there's two pieces of it. There's your piece, and then there's the sort of social component piece. And so the, the piece that's really about yours, that's where I talk about like going back to your basic good. What are your, what are your superpowers? Like what are the two or three things that really make you who you are that in any sort of context, um, you know, really show and illustrate you and your flavor. And you might, you, that, that flavor might slightly change um, based on the context or the environment or the situation that you're in, but you still have the core. So let me give you an example of this, or, or at least an analogy to kind of explain what this is like. Um, whenever my, my mother, who is from Taiwan, cooks, she starts with the same sort of basic ingredients. She starts with ginger and garlic and sesame oil and soy sauce. And no matter what she's sort of cooking, like she can cook lots of different dishes, but it's still like those are the sort of basic ingredients that she starts with. And that's sort of the essence of that, that cuisine. When my husband, my Italian husband, whenever he cooks, it, he also has garlic, but he also, but then he has like olive oil and red wine and like prosciutto di parma to kind of taste on the side. And what he cooks is very like different in essence. They have different basic goods that 
no matter what dish they're sort of making, still has that that kind of flavor. And as individuals, we're sort of the same. Like you might take one person who is really trustworthy and conscientious and empathetic, and you might have somebody else who's really also very trustworthy and conscientious, but for some reason that empathy is like not one of their like main things. That's a completely different person. And so when we when we do things like say like, oh, you're really good at presentation, you should go into sales. That's a very sort of, it's a, it's a recommendation that doesn't have a lot of depth because it doesn't go back to what those basic goods are and the fact that you can change one ingredient or change one sort of characteristic and it makes a really different set. And so that's what I sort of suggest is first go back to like, what are those core things about you? It can be characteristics. It can be hobbies. It can be things that you're good at. But at your essence, like what were those things that carried with you that you had as a child that you also sort of saw as you were growing up that as you grew up, those are like things that were sort of dependable things that you always depend on. And then you can sort of craft that based on the particular situation that you're in or the dish that you're cooking or the type of flavors that you want to have for that particular day. Uh, That's really what I mean by enrich and and how you provide value and how you can hone that for any sort of situation that you're in. And so I talk a lot in in my research and in my book about different strategies and how-tos and ways that you can actually figure that out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... This sounds like it's not just straightforward. So it's not just a matter of I'm an expert in this content area. That might be a piece of it. But you're talking about mm-hmm. much deeper than that, much more of what the core and essence of me is about. One of my pet peeves is people will say I'm a great problem solver or I'm mm-hmm. customer centric. Well, I would argue we all are. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're not in business. So give me an example of what an enrich thing really sounds like beyond just the sort of the um, expertise or beyond the idea of I'm a problem solver or I'm customer oriented. Yeah, I mean, so I'll give you an example that that sort of weaves in lots of different pieces of of like what creating an edge can can look like. So. one of the one of the stories that I tell in in the book is about a man named Dave Dahl, who was is the, the a successful entrepreneur, and he's the founder of this company called Dave's Killer Bread. Uh, they make artisanal breads, and um, and they've been extremely successful. So Dave, before he started this company, um, was formerly incarcerated and found himself in and out of prisons all sort of through his his um, through his life and. He constantly, every time he would sort of get out of prison, he would try and find a job, but he couldn't get one because um, because he was formerly incarcerated and there was all this stigma behind. So he was like constantly in it, but yet then he had these sort of responsibilities and financials. And so he constantly found this sort of difficulty where he was hitting the same wall over and over and over again. And at some point, he sort of went back and thought like, when he was younger, he really loved to bake bread. It was like one of these sort of things. And and he was also someone who really cared about other people and just sort of his trajectory. He just got off this, he got off this trajectory that he wanted to be on where he really wanted to, he, he's always been somebody who's very sympathetic and, 
a one of those people that is a helper, like in any situation, he he looks for the other helpers and looks for, for people. And he really loved to sort of bake bread. And so when he um, decided to start Dave's Killer Bread, he realized that he was never going to get the opportunity, but that he needed to sort of grow where he was planted. And that meant sort of starting where he was and acknowledging the fact that he was formerly incarcerated and then starting to sort of bake breads and experiment with that. And he started hiring formerly incarcerated individuals and helping and sort of using that helping and using that, 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 that sympathy that he had for who he was for others and sort of looking for other helpers and then built this, built this company sort of up and it's an extremely successful company. Another example um, that I love is the um, founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Brian Scudamore, who um, was a high school dropout. Um, he talks about how he was really good at getting into, you know, colleges and universities, but then kept dropping out. So he got into multiple, even though he didn't have a high school degree, he then got a GED and then got into college and then dropped out. And he started this junk removal, junk hauling company. Um, and, and again, it was this instance of like going back to what were his basics. Now, both of these stories sort of have this like this element of one person was a high school dropout, one person was formerly incarcerated. But I tell these stories not because of, not because of the, the aspect of like that adversity, but the fact that anybody, no matter where you are, if you go back to those sort of basics and who you were sort of as a child and who you were and like, what are the things that you really love and what are the things that you continue to love, but maybe don't, don't emphasize as much that, that allows you to, you know, it, 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 it hones your ability to see how this can affect your trajectory going forward and enables you specifically to see how to act upon opportunities that you can then delight and continue to um, to push the envelope forward. And what you were sort of saying um, before, which I thought was was, um, was really interesting, was was sort of this element of like we 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 sort of know that this is a more complicated thing than we expect. Like you sort of were like, wow, there's a lot in here, and. There is, because so many times people ask me, they're like, okay, what are the five steps I should take to find my edge? And I'm like, I wish that I could give a formula. Like, step one is this, step two is this, step three is this. But there really is no, this is really a perspective. The more authentic you make it and the more you go back to what your roots are and your basic goods are, the more effective you're going to be at knowing how you enrich and delight and guide and how you can make that effort go forward. So this is about, I mean, we could look at this in terms of the work around purpose or the work around values or the work around what gives you a sense of meaning in your life or, as many say, go back to the stories of your childhood and youth, the things that you just loved to do and would do again and how did those show up, you know, because you don't lose those passions over time. There have been a number of people we've been talking about and writing about that how do you find that? And it's probably a good starting place for beginning to understand what this is that gives you the skills, what's the value that you bring, the basic goods, as you often say, that you're going to use to enrich somebody else's life. All right, Laura, this is a perfect break time for a break. And those are great stories also. 
My guest today is Laura Huang. The book we're talking about is Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. And if you'd like to know more about Laura's movement, hashtag find your edge, then you want to go to HTTPS colon slash slash edgeremarkable.com and sign up there. When we come back, I want to talk about the other two components that we've left out on this model. So we've talked about enrich, we've talked a little bit about guide, but we need to talk about delight and about effort. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Laura Huang, and the book we're talking about is Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura's also created an initiative called Hashtag Find Your Edge, which is dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. I've given various places that you can sign up for it, but you can also go to laurahuang.net much easier to say, and sign up there as well um, and hear more about all of this initiative. Now, Laura's notion is that not always does our hard work enough, that we need to do more than just have hard work. Of course, we need hard work, but we need more. And the idea is that we need to enrich, which means we need to know what the value is that we're real providing, the basic goods, the core things. We need to be able to delight. That means understand how other people see and how we're delight and surprising other people with what we're providing. We need to guide as in redirect people's perceptions and we need to um, put in the effort, which is how we make sure that the hard work is actually working harder for us. So Laura, before I launch into a couple of these other components, can you kind of give me a story that sort of connects all four of those together and how this works and what it looks like? I mean, yeah, I mean, the personal example that that I that I talk about, I mean, it's it the 
you know, the, the adversity piece is so dependent on, on who you are. And, and so I'll give an example that doesn't really necessarily touch upon, like, this wasn't a, a huge adversity like the ones that I see. You know, it, I faced lots of adversity in my life in terms of, like, student loans and um, being raised eventually by, by a single mother and, and, and sort of the race, the gender, and all of those sorts of things. But I'll give just a sort of small example of, of something that touches upon each of those, those pieces. Um, I was scheduled to um, interview a very well-known, um, well-known individual, um, Elon Musk. Um, I had lucked my way into getting a meeting with him. A friend basically serendipitously had gotten this meeting and invited me along. We were at the time we were doing research on the emergence of the new space industry. And Elon had founded a company called SpaceX. He's the founder and CEO of SpaceX, Tesla, lots of different companies. And so we were meeting to sort of discuss the future of new space. And we had prepared immensely for this meeting. So when we talk about sort of that hard work piece, we put in lots of hard work around um, all of his companies, researching all of his companies, his past, his products. Um, we had prepared interview questions. We knew what we wanted to discuss. We had ways that we knew we would enrich him. We had, you know, information, things that we had researched that we could help um, provide to him. And we had even, you know, prepared a little gift for him going in so that, you know, he a token of our appreciation. So we get to this meeting, and the first thing that happens within 15 to 20 seconds is he looks at me and he says, no, get out. And so this is sort of that adversity that I'm talking about. You know, I'm faced with this obstacle where the first thing this man says to me that Elon Musk says to me is get out, get out of my office. And I'm thinking, I haven't even said anything. I have no idea what's happening here. He is kicking me out of his office. So I, you know, sort of nervously started giggling because I was not sure what to do. And so when I get nervous, I sort of laugh or giggle or something. And so um, I'm standing there laughing at this, man who's one of the richest, most powerful men in the country. And he's sort of shocked because I don't think he has lots of, you know, young women standing in front of him laughing in his face. And so he starts laughing as well. And I have no idea why he started laughing, but, you know, there's research that suggests in, in times of uncertainty, we sort of mimic others as well. And so he starts laughing as well. And while we're both laughing at each other, I realized that he wasn't actually looking at me. He was looking at the gift that I was holding. And it was this unwrapped gift that I realized that the perception he had about us was that we were entrepreneurs and that I was holding a product prototype and that we were trying to pitch him, that we wanted his money or resources or introduction or something, that I understood that the perception he had about us was something different than who we actually were. And so I... Um, very quickly was like, oh, oh, you think we're entrepreneurs? And he's like, well, aren't you? And I said, and you think we want your money? And he's like, and, and don't you? And I sort of nervously was like, what? Like, we, you have money or something? Like, some, something along the lines of like, you don't have any money, do you? Why would we want your money? And he thought that was sort of hilarious and then invited us into his office. And so, so far, right, this is, this is like an, it, this is this example of like, we faced an obstacle. We were facing some type of adversity and it can be any kind of adversity, something from as small and banal as getting kicked out of someone's office. But once I understood what that underlying perception was, I was able to kind of crack that door open, right? You know, laughing, ca ca catching him by surprise. 
he he saw something sort of counterintuitive in us and then um, started immediately kind of guiding his perceptions about like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we are. And so he invited us into his office once he kind of was laughing at, at my comment. And we had this very productive meeting where we continued to guide his perceptions of who we are and what we were doing there. We showed him how we enrich and provide value by giving him lots of sort of information that he didn't even realize about his own company. And by the end of that meeting, um, you know, without us even planning or asking for it, he started offering the very things that he thought we wanted from the beginning. He started offering us introductions to people that he knew and resources and, and things. And so, you know, it, it really kind of, illustrates. It's, it's just one type of illustration. Um, but there's lots of other sort of deeper adversity that, that I've kind of faced or that I've seen. Um, you know, I do a lot of research on entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs face lots of adversity in, try, in terms of trying to get funding for their companies. And so I talk about how female entrepreneurs can flip biased questions to sort of get the funding that they deserve. I talk about healthcare and how, you know, some of my research shows that who is treating you and the, the the sort of communication that you have with your healthcare provider really impacts the type of care and treatment that you get. I talk about political candidates. I talk about children. And it's such a huge one where parents are fighting so hard to give their kids an advantage by buying their way into college and buying test scores and even in a more legal sort of way, providing extra coaching and extra tutoring and extra exposure to things. But why not instead teach your kids how to gain and create their own edge? So lots of different examples that I kind of share. And I know we don't have enough time to get into all of those here, but, but this works in a variety of different contexts and environments. I can, I can see how it's such a powerful framework. But if I come back to your story with Elon Musk or to any of these situations, because I don't exactly often go into somebody's office expecting them to have a perception that's inconsistent with who I am or what I'm about. I don't usually mm-hmm. walk in expecting that. I don't think many of us do. Maybe we should more often. And to be able to think on your feet in the moment to recognize what it is that person is seeing and perceiving and how I flip that. So, you know, I get that you've done your homework, that I know what I could do to enrich, I know how to delight, and now we're still back in that guide territory in a moment being able to flip it. Um, You know, if you go back to your story with Elon Musk, what do you think let you see that it was about the gift you were carrying as opposed to something else? I think there's two pieces to this for people, right? I mean, I talk a lot about, I talk a lot in the book about how it's so important to hone your ability to to do this. And the more that you understand how you do enrich and how you do delight, the more you're going to be able to sort of spot and, and hone your ability to see those things. But the second piece of it is not that preparation piece of it. In fact, it's the opposite of that. We, it's about not over preparing. We tend to over-prepare a lot of times when we go into a situation. And so in that, in, in a normal situation where that would have happened for me or in the past, what I would have done was prepared so much that I would have every single sort of bullet point written out about like what I wanted to talk about in what order. We do this when we have things that we care a lot about 
or we do this when people, um, when the odds are against us or when we're trying to convince someone to see our way and they don't, we're like, okay, I've got these like six points and they're great points and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say all of them and the other person's going to be so wowed by that, by this that they're going to completely change their mind. Like that's what we sort of go in thinking. And so we come into these conversations and we have like these bullet points in our heads and we're so prepared that we sort of steamroll and we don't understand, we, we, but the, the, the reality is that people don't change their minds in that way. They don't change their minds when we sort of advocate in that way. And so the point is to go in prepared but not over-prepared because when you're not over-prepared, it allows you to dynamically be able to improvise, to be able to take something that someone else said. And even though it's not going in the direction that you thought it would be going in, that you can see one aspect of it or one small piece of what they've said and be able to tangentially still talk about that and kind of weave it back in. And so what I mean by this is sort of a lot of times we go in advocating and instead we need to go in with more of an inquiry mindset, with more of a help me understand why it is that you're seeing our strategy like this, or help me understand why we've gotten to a situation where X and Y is sort of happening. And when you do that, you get more of that ability to then see and act upon opportunities to delight. Right. Great. This reminds me a lot of a show we did a few weeks ago with Bob Colhan um, on Yes And. And he yeah. comes from the improvisation theater work and has a bit of a unique angle on this particular work applied for business. But it's that notion of being able to take whatever is offered to you in the moment, see it for what it is, and work with that. And I think it's the same thing you're saying here, that we're not going in to push an agenda, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I don't care, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But we go in maybe with a one, we listen to see what happens, and then we're prepared with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, when the timing is right for them, as opposed to just steamrolling, as you said, and that that's part of what it takes to actually delight, to understand what's needed at what moment to delight. Okay? I buy that one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, we've talked a little bit about, I think the part of the, the um, framework that I am so fascinated by is the G, the guide part, the perceptions, the making that work for you. But I want to talk, and we've talked about enrich, and we've talked about the delight piece, we've talked about the guide piece. Let's talk about the effort part, where you say this is how you make sure that your hard work is working harder for you. So explain how this one works. Yeah, I mean, it's really this notion that we've all been taught that hard work is the secret to success. I mean, you, we look at super successful people. We look at Olympians. We look at world record holders. We look at gold medalists. We look at, you know, CEOs, people who have founded their own companies and are at the top of their game. And when, when we see them being interviewed or we see them you know, interacting with people and they're asked, like, what's the secret to your success? Inevitably, they always mention hard work amongst one of the things they say. Hard work is always, they just, you know, kids just keep working hard, work hard and believe in your dreams and just keep working hard. And what I found is that this leaves a lot of people feeling sort of helpless and frustrated because they do put in the hard work or you see two people who put in the same amount of hard work, but one person will inevitably be more successful than the other. 
And then you have to wonder why that is. And the reason is, again, because it is about these stereotypes and perceptions. And, you know, you spoke a little bit before about, like, when you go into a situation, you don't expect that they have the wrong kind of perception or stereotypes about you. But, you know, it's inevitable that they won't have a completely accurate view of who you are. And and so, you know, sometimes it may be that they, they have like 80%, you know, this sort of 80% understanding of who you are. But, you know, that nuance is so important. That nuance is really where a lot of those those perceptions and those stereotypes actually get made. So I do have, you know, one chapter in my book where I pretty much insult everybody. I, I, I truly do insult everyone. I say things like, you know, if you're this gender, here's the perception, here's the stereotypes. I have. This gender, this race, this, you know, this occupation, this religion, and this gender and race and occupation. And, you know, so if you're a woman, this is maybe what they're thinking of you. If you're black, this is what you're saying. If you're a black woman, this is what they're thinking of you. And, you know, that, that, those core stereotypes drive a lot of our perceptions, but they're not everything. There's still 20% that's based on the nuance of the context. And so how you, how you sort of hone your ability to understand who you are versus who that other person is and their background and their experiences and their perceptions and that how that space in between the two of you and how that interacts, that's really um, an important piece of it. Okay. So you said something at the very beginning, um, and when you were ta- the very, very, very beginning, when you were talking about um, sort of flipping stereotypes on their heads, and you said it's not so much about, we were talking about ageism, and you said it's not so much that you go in and name the stereotype. Like, it's not that you go in, you say, I can imagine that you think I don't know much about technology because I'm older. Do is that a good strategy ever to say I can imagine that you think I'm not as strategic because I'm something or other? Do we name it yeah. or does that naming it, put people on defensive? Rarely do you want to be doing that because the problem is that it then becomes this, oh, I would never, you know, they, if you say, oh, I know it's because I'm a woman that you think X, Y, and Z, their immediate reaction is going to be, no, 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 that's not what I was thinking even if it is, but you will never now know. Whereas if you try and get at what that underlying assumption is and you're flipping that, right, there's this congruence between what that negative perception is and what that positive affiliation of that is, right? So if it's on the one hand that you're, um, that you're sort of, I don't know, conceited, right? That if you're, you've worked in banking and you're conceited and you're sort of selfish, the flip side of that is that you care a lot and you work really hard for, and, and you care about sort of outcomes. And so if you're sort of trying to show people that you're not kind of conceited and, and selfish, but that it's really based on this fact that you care a lot about those who are close to and really showing those results and you're, there's no harm, no foul if you're wrong about it, right? If you're showing people that you're curious because you're an older employee or you're showing somebody that you're really warm and competent because you're a woman, there's no harm in you doing that and being wrong, right? If you go into an interview and you say, I'm curious about your strategy and I'm curious about your vision and how it's evolved over time, even if you are wrong, you're still you're still putting forth a very positive evaluation 
But right. if you go in saying, like, I know it's because I'm a woman or I know it's because I'm older that you think this, you've already kind of confronted this in a very negative way. Okay. So it's it's almost like I always want to lead with the upside of whatever the stereotype might be. Take that flip You're of those in. Focus on what's good yeah, about I'm, it. And if I lead with that, all I'm doing is showcasing a good thing about me. And I'm not challenging the other person. I'm not boxing them in a corner and somehow making them wrong. You are challenging to some extent because you're acknowledging, you know, that, that, that that's that underlying perception. But you're really flipping that in your to your benefit. Okay. Okay. All right. Two minutes. You talk a lot about, in effort, getting others to seek speak for you. And I have to say, that sounds like an absolutely ideal thing. We often all want that. But it's hard to difficult. It's hard, very difficult to achieve, especially when everybody's busy and overwhelmed and they got their own mentees. How do we get more effective at asking other people to help us in making our hard work showcase in the right way? I mean, we have to sort of understand that everyone has their own everyone to some extent has their own passions and goals and agenda. And the more that we sort of see an overlap between our own passion and agenda and goals and, or the more that we can tap into the ways in which they, they might intersect, that's when we're going to be able to really um, create those deeper, richer connections. So it's a matter of understanding what it is that I'm trying to achieve and what somebody else is also trying to achieve or cares about mm-hmm. or wants yeah. to solve or something. And I become a part of their solution set. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you really make this, um, you, you make it, and it's not always going to fit quite that, that concisely or quite, or, or quite that cleanly, Um there's going to be sort of some some instances where you have to give a little more, and there's going to be some instances when that other person is going to be give, able to give a little bit more. But you start you start to sort of understand these relationships and know the people that you can trust and the people that that do kind of see in the same direction as as you, so that you you understand that those goals might not always align, but they're generally in the same direction. Okay. Okay. All right. So. Um, any last piece of advice that you would like to give or inspiration even for that matter for people who are trying to take whatever disadvantage they're feeling and flip it in their favor? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the one last piece that we that we perhaps didn't talk about, uh, about as much is just that acknowledging that there are going to be failures. There are going to be drawdowns and failures and obstacles and adversity, and that is part of it. Things are not going to go right 100% of the time. But even using that, like understanding that, that those failures and those drawdowns, there's data even in that. And that's really ultimately when we are able to make sense of all of it in, in, in sort of together so that we can create our own edge. I like this. Laura, what a, I think the work that you're doing is hugely inspiring. Uh, it is to me, and I'm assuming it is to everybody else. My guest today is Laura Huang. The book is called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. If you'd like to sign up for her initiative called Hashtag Find Your Edge, go to laurahuang.net, and you'll find a um, place to sign up there. I think the thing that I really like at the end of this, that I take away from this, is this whole notion of I really need to know what I got to offer. 
offer? What is my core goods that I'm bringing? And how am I using that to delight you? And now with that preparation, watching for those opportunities to be able to guide your perception, to shift your perception, to draw your attention to the right sorts of things. Um, And doing that in a light way, as in a steamrolling way for me, seems to be such such a positive form. So, Laura, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me as well. And join us next week for another episode of Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.